0: Today we are talking to Dan Pellino, and this is a very exciting moment because he is extremely knowledgeable about the healthcare system. He today is going to talk about this idea of leadership in healthcare, and more specifically we're looking at society, societal changes in the system. So, how does society go about moving and changing a system so that it becomes more inclusive, more accessible to its citizens, no matter the the, the background, the socioeconomic background or, or conditions? And at the same time, it's it's a topic that is extremely, um, incredibly relevant today. It was already relevant a year or two ago when we were talking about slowly shifting towards um, patient-centric care. We saw a lot of different um discussions on uh, technology with inter- interoperability and so on so that was really about giving more shifting a little bit the balance um, giving a little bit more power to the patient we saw a wave about patient-centric care um, and patient education and patient engagement now in the more recent times with the presidential debates we have heard also a lot about this idea of um, healthcare and and who should really be able to access it, um, can can it be designed in a way that is sustainable yet inclusive? His book Trusted Healers has been part of of the this very central debate. It has actually been number one on Amazon in the category of um, healthcare policy which is quite amazing and um it it can it continues today with covid because it's uh, it's something that we've really seen i think um exposed more and more covid has shown a little bit the disparities and the inequalities that exist uh, throughout our system and in all spheres and healthcare was one of those aspects that did come out and so today this talk remains as relevant as it has been actually for the past year or two um, perhaps even more so so I'm very excited to introduce Dan Pellino as a very quick um, bio and probably does does not do him justice for for everything that his experience and everything that he has accomplished. Um, He did work For IBM for 36 years. For 10 of those years, he was leading its global healthcare and life sciences business uh, division. He is the founder of Everyone Matters, which is a social impact enterprise. We're going to link to that in um, the show notes. And it, it really stresses the, this idea of equal access for all of the citizens um, to, to services like healthcare, like education. Um, and you might have heard either of his book, <laughs> um, because it has been quite popular on Amazon, but also if uh, you've been consuming the media, he has also been a regular contributor to all kinds of discussions on healthcare um, that are really revolving around the idea of um, citizen-based services. So on CNN, on Bloomberg, on, on BBC and others. We Without further ado, here is Dan Pellino.
1: Welcome Dan, we are very excited to have you today. Um, I'm sure that the listeners are probably already familiar with some of the work you do, but do you wanna just um, refresh us a little bit on the, the book you've published and some of your past experiences, just to give us a little bit of context.
2: Yeah, thanks. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for, for inviting me. So, uh, Trusted Healers, it's a, a book that I didn't necessarily start out to write, but people encouraged me to because I had had many years of experience uh, traveling the world, actually three decades, working with the best healthcare systems, government leaders, others. And we looked at leadership, societal change, and healthcare and the impact that would have. and. And fundamentally, I'm kind of a community builder. I'm someone that's out there looking for, for good ideas, looking in the gaps. I'm an organizational behavioral kind of individual. And so I wrote the book from that standpoint of following great leaders like Dr. Paul Grundy and many others who work with Nelson Mandela and many of the experiences. And I was fortunate to have my good friend, uh, uh, former Congressman Patrick Kennedy, write the foreword for the book. And Dr. Michael Roizen from Cleveland Clinic, uh, one of the most fascinating leaders on well care, uh, be my mentor through the book and, and many others contributed along the way. And so I, I wrote the book from their perspective so that we as consumers of healthcare would be Encouraged by their leadership and what they've done, and why they've done what they've done, and and maybe give people a few ideas. Um, I'm I'm a person who believes in three things: aspiration, inspiration, and discipline. And so, with that, I wanted to create an aspiration of better healthcare systems that would potentially inspire all of us to pay attention to our healthcare in a different way, come up with some ideas and suggestions about what should happen and then the discipline to be able to do it and so that's what's in the book
1: so i'm very curious because you are an innovator of sorts and i I would like to know how would you describe the difference between maybe your thoughts and the mainstream when it comes to healthcare.
2: well first of all i've had a chance to travel the world and, and, and and work with leaders and so i can see what's the art of the possible and also where we are grounded today and we've made tremendous progress um people don't know this, but the first health records were, electronic health records, were in 1960, and, and, and it took a long time before we actually could get them integrated into the healthcare system. We all lived through the, the era of being able to have the uh, obligatory file folder, if you will, with all of our information and banks of this behind the nurses and the administrators. Now, 98% of all hospitals in the U.S. have all of that digitized. And, and with that, we're, we're doing so much better. So I, I have wanted to continue to encourage people to look for those kind of systems and to be able to trust those systems and find a trusted healer where their quality of life can be better if they're aware of these kind of systems and, and how then to find that trusted healer and put themselves in the right system and, and know what their blood pressure is, know what their cholesterol is, know what their glucose is, understand the impact of weight, trying to be able to reduce stress, get away from nicotine, make sure you're up to date on your vaccines, and then be able to have that relationship with a doctor, a trusted healer, someone that will help you uh, be able to lead the life you want to lead.
1: Right. So there's two big components in what you're saying. You're saying one, there's a trusted healer that really knows you well, has access to your data, and is able to accompany you. And there's this other uh, dimension you're describing, which is a lot of empowerment on um, in terms of, the patient that now is not just in a paternalistic system where they're responding to um, you know orders from the doctor, but they're actively monitoring at home their health and making active decisions every day.
2: A- a- absolutely. So first of all, we talk about a trusted healer. Um, in the past, if you thought about a trusted healer, many people would remember like an aunt or a grandmother or someone that was for the family that that trusted healer. As a matter of fact, you may have gone to a doctor, and doctor prescribed something, and your aunt, or your grandmother says, "No, no, I'm just going to rub Vicks vapor rub here. You'll be all better." And of course, the chicken soup era, etc. Today, a trusted healer is really an institution or system or a practice where your information is housed. It's readily available. You can get an appointment uh, anytime you need an appointment. And you're able to have someone that you trust and that trust is in that system so that they would contain that information and be able to have that. So when I say trusted healer, it's not necessarily that Marcus Welby or that aunt or that one person. It really is within a system where that information is and, and what it can do. So I I, I I offer that to you within that kind of thought. Now when you talk about empowerment, who, who amongst us hasn't gone to Google to search on whatever's bothering us to come up with whatever we think it is? The, the challenge, of course, is we really don't want to self medicate, do we, or, or self prescribe. So uh, it's, it's interesting in how we all look at that today and how we think about Google and the empowerment. What we should do with that is take that information then to a doctor and have that relationship with that institution and have them help us.
1: Okay, and, and this does uh, require, I'm guessing, a little bit more time and schedule, right, for a doctor, because if now I come with discussion points, it, it will take time to educate me and have this back and forth.
2: Well, and, and, and also this is why I think we're having so many more RNs and PAs and, you know, registered nurses, physician's assistants, and other caregivers that are making such a difference in ensuring we don't have burnout and that you have the right people that that work with you that have, uh, they're at the, they they practice at the top of their educated license. And, And within that, we can have more healthcare professionals that are helping us and they'll be more knowledgeable towards the same challenges that we see when we go search on Dr. Google or whatever it might be to find that improvement.
1: Great. So the, the model sounds really interesting and, and inspiring in, in that regard. Then I'm looking at how we fund such a model because we already know America is one of the least effective systems in terms of how they run healthcare. There's a lot of inefficiencies uh, comprised in it. So having all this extra support for the individual seems wonderful in terms of outcomes. How do we actually, where do we find the money or the funds to, to have a system like that?
2: Well, there's a couple of aspects. That funding questions is, is, a, is an important question because we have government-funded healthcare, we have insurance-funded healthcare. Some people like to go on their own kind of healthcare. We actually have four different ways to pay for care. But what we do know is that people that are able to understand their blood pressure, or manage their cholesterol, their glucose levels, etc., cetera, they are far less likely to be in an emergency room, uh, roughly 25%, 19% less to have overnight stays, with them, and also about 33% reduction in their cost of their healthcare system that they have for themselves. So what that tells you is that if, if you do these things up front, if you pay attention to well care, and you pay attention to what you eat, and you pay attention to how you move and exercise, and you pay attention to how you think, you can actually be empowered to take more responsibility for your care than you know, and then with that trusted healer, you're less likely to be in an emergency situation, less likely to have hospital stays, and for sure spend less money on, on healthcare. And, and, and that's encouraging, I think. That's, that's a promise uh, of being able to take better care of ourselves.
1: Right. And, and I've heard once the idea that um, a system that would be efficient in healthcare would be the right care at the right time. So not too much care that's not needed, not care that comes at a moment where you don't need it. But when you do actually need it, then you can access it. Um, but in, in that regards, I'm also curious because right now, every time you do go to a visit, you're, you're paying an amount. So there is a business model that encourages um, dropping in and seeing someone or, or doing an activity. How, how do we actually have, um, in, in terms of incentives and you know, reimbursements, in terms of policies, what are the shifts that we see that encourage this preventive kind of care?
2: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. Uh, certainly, uh, one of the gifts of coronavirus to us is the acceleration of telehealth and telecare, which is significantly less costly and encourages more participation. And while many people were resistant of this at first, it, it's been something now that will change all of our healthcare and how healthcare is delivered forever. And it's significantly less. It allows more engagements, and people are getting more and more comfortable with. it. Of course, we have to bring the infrastructure to some of the communities that don't do not have the infrastructure to have those kind of visits. But it's 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 a big promise that I think is being delivered on on, on telehealth. So I. I would start there, first of all, with some of the changes that are happening. Additionally, by spending more money on well care, we spend less money on sick care. You know, we as a society, actually going back to 1911, We focused on specialty care. There was something called the Flexner Report, which defined medical schools, which was what you should study, biology and the sciences. And then people would go to specialty and they would pick a specialty and they would go on and do their work. And then they would be able to hang a shingle. And we've been the best specialty care deliverers in the world, in the United States, ever since that time in in 1911. But what we haven't been is the best on well care. So we're great on sick care. And when people are sick, we definitely want them here in the United States. And we've trained that way. But there's a movement afoot, this movement of foot to move from what would be health care to health, and a movement to well care from sick care, and a movement of how you think, and how you eat, and how you move, versus a sanitary lifestyle. So those are all good things that society is moving towards with the challenges of lower cost, a, a different involvement model, and more empowerment and responsibilities as an individual.
1: Right. And if I can go down to the micro level, I find it very fascinating the fact that people now uh, would have to think of their future selves and order to shift a little bit how they're they're behaving. Because if I am in a relatively okay state now and there's no emergency or no no urgency for me to act on my health and start maybe exercising more which might not be pleasant at first or um, you know change my eating habits, change my routines. How how do you think we can help people or are there movements already to help people bridge that gap and, and shift from waiting to be sick to actually wanting to take action right now?
2: well i'm so excited that you asked me that micro question because when we started you were talking about these big questions these macro questions etc but now i think i may have answered some of them successfully enough that you're saying okay i believe you now let's talk all the way down to me let's talk about the micro level what's changing for for me and and, and of course the digitized era has changed much for instance do you know how many steps you've taken today you you probably do many people use devices to help them sleep at night, calm other applications. Many people can take their blood pressure using the device to work. We're so readily aware of and have at our disposal these types of devices and this type of information. When babies go to sleep at night, they can wear pajamas with a sock on them that gives their breathing patterns, blood levels, the blood flow, so that you can see whether or not the babies, it's on a display where the parents are having a conversation or the parents having a conversation they don't have to run and check and see whether or not the baby's breathing or not like i did when when, when my children were when we i always were going back in and you know are they, are they breathing are they okay are their faces down is that the right thing but there's so much advancement that's making this empowerment and also by the way the cost is significantly less that we we are doing a better job with the whole health model, not just health care, because the health care gets into the sick care. and This is where we spend a lot of our money, but there's good work that's being done on the front end, and we have to pay attention to that. And it's it not with us as individuals. As an individual empowering themselves to know your blood pressure, to know your glucose, know weight, understand how important it is not to smoke, looking at it, your stress levels, get your vaccinations, have a trusted healer in your life. Have that primary care, that RN, that PN, that doctor that you you trust, that institution you trust to help you be the best you can be.
1: So what you're talking about is also interesting in terms of um, health literacy, right? Because you're saying now consumers, basically patients at home can start interpreting their results and making sense of things and, and making decisions. And it's interesting to me because traditionally that role was a nurse or a physician. Um, that would tell it in their office. Now you have big players like tech companies um, that that start to come into this mix and they bring in those technologies in the home. They bring that knowledge, I guess, the dashboards that they um, construct. So there's, there's a whole thinking in behind not just providing the information but providing it in a digestible format that makes sense to that person and being almost an outsider of healthcare that now suddenly becomes part of that team of trusted carers.
2: Yes, and for some it could sound very complicated that you have to know these numbers, etc. But the truth of the matter is if you understand, uh, according to Dr. Royzen, your blood pressure, your cholesterol, your glucose levels, the impact that weight has, the idea about stress and reducing stress and no nicotine in your bloodstream and being able to be up to date on your vaccines and, as I mentioned, having a relationship Those six metrics and those two actions of having your vaccines and then being able to have a relationship, tremendous impact, tremendous impact on on the quality of health. So people shouldn't be overly burdened by the fact that there's all this technology that's out there. They should understand themselves and then use the technology to empower themselves to then have that conversation with their trusted healer about who they are, the uniqueness of who they are.
1: Do do you think um, some some of the research I've seen mentioned uh, specifically for cancer patients that they often knew that they had some questions they would want to have a discussion with their physician but they didn't really know how to phrase it or what to ask specifically. Um, Were there pointers or things that people could um, you know use to better prepare uh, their their visit to the doctor and I know Malcolm Gladwell also almost a, a decade ago I think already started mentioning this in terms of disparities of how um, certain classes of people were prepared to meet their doctors and others arrived there and didn't really know how to have that dialogue. And that does impact the effort.
2: Well, now you're getting into a, a fascinating conversation because should it be within our communities of population, in population health that you have, uh, uh, social workers that can help people figure out how to ask, ask those questions. People that are part of their community, part of their culture, that understand what's current to them where you you could call someone that's down the street or a social worker you may go see or may stop by and talk to you and say, I want to ask these questions, but I don't want to ask them. Can you help me be able to do that? And there's all sorts of wonderful programs that are starting to, 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 to do that. Of course, if somebody does feel that they have cancer and they want to go to a specialty, you know, the best specialties in the world are ready to help people uh, in any way uh, with, with cancer and some of these more advanced
1: diseases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, I, I know that we are moving into uh, a little bit more of. Um when you're looking at elections and so on, maybe like the the COVID has really changed a lot of the situation, but do do you think there's still a a platform there to talk about healthcare and maybe reforms or or different approaches to how we wanna tackle these issues?
2: Well, definitely there'll be a a platform conversation around uh, health and healthcare. So uh, I believe that Medicare and Medicaid is still gonna be important. I believe they'll probably still be a a private option of insurance that people can have. I do believe that you'll see movement to increase the poverty level so that more people that are up in the underserved markets in the poverty level will qualify for Medicaid. And that's a good thing. I also believe that the idea of dropping the age on Medicare down to roughly 55 is a good idea and the time has come. You know, these are ideas that when they brought out Medicare and Medicaid in 1965, um, when Lynn, these were ideas that people had to, to, to do this and, and following somewhat the Douglas model in Canada and, and others, not necessarily to give healthcare to all, but to ensure that you reach the outer sides of the population. So I, I think we'll still have insurance products. I think people will sell supplementals the VA will still be around, where we have government-owned hospitals and government-owned doctors. And I'm, for one, hopeful as we address this right versus privilege, that in the right conversation, we increase the poverty level so more people that are underserved have care, and that we lower the age for Medicare so that the people that are getting older, that we can help them on that journey sooner than, than later.
1: Do, do you think a maybe um, coordinated approach or more holistic approach might help and uh, this is a little bit of a leading question but to, to clarify a little bit my thinking I see a lot of interdependencies like um, we were talking about food uh, access right um, and snap programs and, and things like that which may be revoked or might might or might not reach a certain um, number of people and this we know is is a prime builder of health right what you consume, in your diet has a direct impact. Um, right. I look at the education system and what is taught in biology or different classes, and a lot of the things you mentioned early on about, you know, six indicators that everyone should know to manage their health. Um, right. Would that be? You know, taught maybe in schools if your parents are not aware of that could you give a whole new generation access to that um, infrastructure which you mentioned earlier in terms of internet access for certain zones that may not have access to it both for the information value to know and find out about conditions but also to access um, for example if you have transportation issues but you do have internet maybe you have a way to reaching uh, a healthcare um, advisor then in, in that context so is there any consolidated action that is being looked at Or are we looking at little pieces and maybe um, ground initiatives, maybe
2: from... So, first of all, I'm I'm so happy that you're asking those questions, and you had asked me a question earlier, what I thought might come up in the fall, in the presidential. This is what's going to come up. What you just said is, how do we reach these people? Now, remember, 90% of all healthcare is local. 90% 90% of all healthcare is local. Some people think that it's, you know, this big morass that's 330 million people. The, the truth of the matter is, most everybody gets their healthcare within the community. Unless you have a dire situation, you want to go to a cancer specialist or, or you want to go get another opinion some, someplace else. So with that as a foundation of the conversation, let us then ask within the community, where do you get fresh food and do you have fresh water and do you have the right kind of help to ask the questions as we were talking about earlier when you feel like you're sick and what is a medical home and where is one and can you tell me where to go for pediatric care given us. Given so I believe you can solve this problem but you're gonna have to solve it at the community level. And we have to give people permission and take what looks very complicated and make it simple. Know your six numbers. Have a conversation with a doctor. Get up to date on your vaccines. Have someone within the community and population health that helps you. Have advocacy to get the right kind of food in fresh markets and not just have fast food around where where you live. And I think we can have a profound impact with just doing those things, know your numbers, have a trusted healer, be able to have access to food, move like you should move, think like you should think, eat like you should eat. And I think we can have an impact and start solving some of those questions that you mentioned.
1: A lot of what you mentioned seems so intuitive. Why? What are the obstacles? Why do you think it hasn't been adopted yet?
2: Well, I'm delighted I'm, I'm that you said that it, it, it seems to be that way because... Um, I like to take what looks very complex and try and make it simple. And having traveled around the world and talked to the best leaders around here, I have a better chance than others because I've seen it work, and I know what works, and I know what doesn't. You know, this industry of healthcare is, is just loaded with tombstones of great ideas and do gooders but their chance, they're, they're chasing a rabbit down a hole that it, it's gonna get away from them. They try and do something that creates a level of differentiation that people don't understand. But here you and I are talking about things that we can get ourselves our head around and be able to do these kinds of things. And that's why I wrote the book about leadership and societal change and and six promises that I, I give people. And in the back of the book, literally they can tear out questions and take them to their doctor or their nurse practitioner or their PA. So I did try and take something that's complicated make it somewhat simple and easy to read in in, in Trusted Healers, where you heard from great leaders, where you saw societal change and went, oh my gosh. You know, in 1968, we lost Martin Luther King. 40 years later, Barack Obama's president. In 1928, it's the first award for a movie about flight to the move, movies. It it was called Wings. 40 years later, we put a man on the moon. The Bible actually cites 40, 146 times. It's a generational kind of thing. It takes us time. It takes countries time to move. And I'm hopeful this is the time that our country can move to this level of empowerment. Take something that looks very complicated and get it to something simple. It says, here's what we could do to take action. Know your numbers, go see your doctor, be up to date on your vaccines, and live the life that you can live.
1: Yeah, simple and actionable. I like that. <laughs> Talking about other countries, I'm, I'm really fascinated by this idea that you can find inspiration because on the one hand, um, there are very different models and different things that have been tested. So it's great as a, as a think tank in a way to, to go and, and take some of these ideas. In another way, implementing them in the multi-payer system we have and in the um, almost siloed system that we have can be a challenge. How, how much of this, and this is interesting too because we have listeners, the majority is in America, but we do have a couple from um, outside of the country. How much of what we see as inspirations around the world is actually translatable to the American system? Or what are the adaptations we can do to shift an idea? into something that's actionable here?
2: Yeah, great question. So let me just pick Denmark for uh, a minute, a country of 5.5 million people. Some people, some of your listeners would say, Dan, why would you pick Denmark? There are only 5.5 million people and we're 330 million people in the United States. But if you remember earlier in our conversation, I mentioned to you that all healthcare is local and you went to Carnegie Mellon, right? Correct. So Pittsburgh, could look like a Denmark. And so the lessons that we learned from Denmark were you can have an appointment, you can see what the best performing doctors do, you can find a place to have a surgical procedure, they have information that's who you are and what that is, and you can create almost like that medical home as a country where they have your information and it's readily available and you can find the best doctor and the best situation for care at that time to, to help you. Could that not be UPMC? Could Denmark not be UPMC? Of course it could. Of course it could. With all the great hospitals that they have and putting that together in women's care and cancer care and sports medicine, pediatric cares, all of those systems, I would work closely with Romoff and the team there. That's what they're trying to do. build that community model underneath that umbrella of UPMC And of course, UPMC has a health plan underneath it. So they help pay for that because you end up buying your insurance from UPMC and they take care of you. And they're trying to do the best job they can and they make sure that they get paid for appropriately. So that's how we can use the best ideas. We can go around the world, find those and then inject them into communities. And from there, we can make a difference in these communities. And UPMC is a good example. There's many others, way. Kaiser and men, many others that do a great job. Guy Singer, wonderful. And I had a chance to work with all of these and see how it worked. And I got a chance to see some of the underperforming systems and what that looked
1: like. That's a fascinating angle. I've never heard someone talk about you know the community aspect, which could replicate a, a smaller version of this.
2: Yeah, and I, I actually think that if. Uh, You know, Jeff Romoff, who runs UPMC, if he heard us talking, he would say, that's exactly what I'm trying to do for the community and the citizens of Pittsburgh and the surrounding area.
1: How much autonomy do American hospitals or, or healthcare systems have? Because there is also an underlying policy that, you know, is a broad application to the entire country or the entire state. Um, and a lot of those models that we're talking about are maybe um, you know under a single payer model they have different policies does it does policy matter at all in our vision? well
2: there's policies of certification that you have to meet etc those are all normal aspects and, and you have to be able to deliver uh, against those but there's enough level of uh, individuality for these systems to focus on on where they can Create value for, for instance some hospitals they would pride themselves on women care and and delivery systems and try and create those kind of models to take care of that care others might do things around you know prostate cancer. Uh, others may do things around acid reflux etc there, there's certainly enough uh, leeway to create value and differentiation for those that want them move move forward with best practices that way. Mayo would tell you that, you know, for sure. Cleveland, the the best performing systems would say, we know how to create value and differentiation and hire the best and create those kind of models. And then they try and differentiate themselves in in a model that's like,
1: Right. And this is interesting because when you're mentioning all these words, they sound like business language, right? Like differentiation in the market with competitors (laughs) and a value proposition. So when you're looking at it as a hospital is a business, did you see any innovative business models within that umbrella of policy that is common to all in the States?
2: Well, I I, I will tell you, I, I did like the systems that had a health plan underneath them with the provider side because they were looking at the best care models and the best cost models. And so I think you see many group up and try and create systems by which they could take responsibility for their own risk management. So it's not just delivering the best care, which they want to do, but also take advantage of delivering that best care by keeping people healthy. Because if you have the insurance plan, as well as the provider, you have an innate incentive model to keep people well. Right. It's aligned. Very aligned. Very aligned. And, and, and so I, um, that would be a good model that, you know, that I, I can see how those perform well. And you create that give and take between trying to do well care for the community, doing the first dollar on on primary care and then specialty and then all under the umbrella. <coughs>
1: No. So I'm, I'm taking this, um, shifting a little bit the discussion more in terms of uh, going back to that idea of the empowerment of the patient because in these models the, the incentives might be more aligned, the patient still has to recognize that this is in their best interest and choose that, that plan or that, um, you know, not institution, but that, that system that they're going to be partnering with um, right. and yet what I've seen um, around the world when I look at different systems I've, I've been under, right? Um, was that there's always trade-offs like even in the best system that you can imagine in in a system that healthcare is accessible to all and so on and so forth there's always trade-offs that we have to do because there are limited resources and you know a big demand. how are there mechanisms or ways or I, I don't know if you've reflected on that aspect of the question but to me, um, you know, like we all, always say in ethics, that choice is the thing that makes something ethical. And for me, choice goes through tr- transparency and the ability for people to look at a system and say, these are yeah. the pros. these are the things I'm giving up. And I'm consciously choosing this, right, knowing the full the picture. Right. Truth.
2: Well, now we're getting into a, a, a fascinating conversation because I, I am a behavioralist and study cultures and how people react, etc. Cultures are important, community is important, Um, lineage is important, Uh, where you came from, what you did, what you were taught. So many of those aspects go into that shake and bake bag called choice. And and, and so we have to be careful not to have everything so regimented that we leave people out. And and if it's too regimented, we will leave, leave people because we can't address all the aspects of choice and culture that's so important. So then the question is how do you balance creating those different options for different cultures in your community when it becomes, is it too expensive to do that? Is it too difficult to do it? Can I get the right skills to be able to do that? And that's kind of what we live with each and every day today and I I think even with COVID, you know, we're seeing that the virus is hitting populations that are more dense, maybe haven't spent as much time with doctors, maybe don't have access to clean water and in, in the space that they may need. And, and then we find out that it's transmitted when people get together in these close, dense areas. These are things that we in society have to pay attention to. And, and so consequently, in order to live in a world of choice, it becomes that Rubik's cube that you talked
1: about. Yeah, the the view on healthcare is very interesting from that perspective, because if you're looking at an ethno-relativistic society versus a ethnocentric one, um, you have that, and I feel that a lot about the American system, there's a way, and and it's maybe to do also with the standardization of care, but there are guidelines and rules about how we perceive that healthcare should be administered. And yet, if I look at other, and a lot of them have to do with, you know, you have an, I mentioned this because I just worked uh, on a a project with immigrants and basically English learners in in the healthcare system here um, in in Pittsburgh and it was interesting because the perception that people have about what good healthcare is was very contingent on the culture that they came from. And so on the one end of the spectrum, we have an American view that says you have annual checkups, you have, you know, um, different things that you, you do throughout the year to almost be maybe not preventive but that are you know things that you regularly go to the hospital for and then on the other end of the spectrum we had people who said no like healthcare for me is you stay away from the hospital as much as possible and only if I fall really sick and I need healthcare, then I go to to see the doctor and these are very you know diametrically opposed um, views of what look like in someone's life and yet if we have incentives in place and standardized care in place um, that pushes one view or another, and and I'm not taking sides because I believe every country does that in, in some way. It's the culture, mm-hmm. it's the systems. Um, but it's this idea of choice, but also public health because your individual choice then affects the the community health, right? If you're vac- vaccinated or not, if you're right. going and seeing, and you know, it's it's a fascinating um, tug for me in terms of how much freedom we give, but also still keeping the population safe in in the end
2: so so you started um you used two very very important words powerful words perception and and reality and you know how you close the gap between perception and reality education empowerment it's empowerment for the individual Because the reality is of the situation that they may live in today, they have a perception that something's better. A perception that they want something that's here, or there's a perception of a promise. If you don't move off of where you are, then you'll never come close to being able to get that perception that you so desire. So I would ask, of those questions that are diametrically opposed, I would then ask the people, tell me what you're doing to empower yourself so that perception becomes your reality on, on both sides and just listen to that and then you'll see the steps that they feel are necessary to deliver on that promise of that perception
1: all right um I think we're gonna come to a close pretty soon um that there's a lot of topics that we had uh, kind of looked at a little bit um, b- before. I think one of the interesting things that I, I would want to maybe finish on um, more strongly is this idea of technology, because I'm looking at aging population at COVID, um, at, you know, the people who maybe not have enough money or enough coverage for their parents and so on, but that may have disposable income to somehow palliate some of these things with in-home care. Um, can can technology be one of the answers or one of the keys to helping um, healthcare and helping empower patients when maybe the system cannot support it financially? You
2: know, well, I, I, I believe um, that it's not just one thing, mm-hmm. right? It, it can't just be technology, but it is that unique combination of technology, people, process, and systems coming together that will create that value for elder care or for wh- whoever needs it at that point in time and technology is really nothing more than an enabler You're, you were kind enough to see that you would you went back to many things that i've done over my time and and i brought out some of the artificial intelligence around watson and other healthcare uh innovations and i would often say that the artificial intelligence would never be the doctor. And the reason is that artificial intelligence really can't look into the depth of your eyes and see what it looks like or see really that expression and understand the things that we as humans understand from each other through that level of social interaction, especially in certain diseases and conditions. So people really do matter. And then the process of how you engage and then the system, systems think, You've studied design thinking. Um, you know.
1: I, thinking, I, I'm, I'm aware. <laughs> yeah, I
2: know. I, I looked at all the things that you've done. So you you understand that how you then create that level of design within your thinking to enable all of those touch points to come together. And it's through those concentric circles coming together in the middle that, that becomes that beacon of hope, that becomes that ray of sunshine, that becomes that difference for us as individuals.
1: Who in the system right now is designing the use cases or picking the use cases? Because it seems to me like there's a number of applications that are possible. And at some point we're going to have as a society to decide what's held um, in charge or, or delivered by humans because of that human component that we need and what can be outsourced, if I could call it that, to a robot, for example, or a machine. Who's the architect overall? You know,
2: it's, so it's interesting that you asked that question because um, I, I don't think you're really, it's, it's not necessarily an outsourcing to a, a a robot. So let's just go through an application, sort of a case study is what you just said for coronavirus. How, how difficult is it going to be for us, like when you go to the airport and you go through TSA and they're checking for things that you have on your body and you get a green light or a red light and then they address that situation depending on the indicator. Why can't you have that for people when they walk into an office and determine whether or not they have a fever or certain conditions, etc.? We're all starting that already. We're all walking around with thermometers. And we're gunning each other in our head and seeing what that looks like every day. You know, we've become really uh, the thermometers become more important today than we ever thought it had been in the past, but nonetheless, That's not a robot, but that's the use of technology by which we can start to do population management so we don't create a spreading environment. So I do think there's much of that within design thinking where when you combine it with what's the technology, how many people and what's their skill level, what's the process that we're gonna want, and then how do we create that on a system level so it's part of the continuum of care, it's part of that continuum of education, it's part of that continuum of, of life and what we do. So I think we have much in front of us to do, but I'm hopeful um, and I'm encouraged by a lot of the progress we've made.
1: Do, do you have a vision on who should uh, partake in this discussion in terms of, because a lot of, here, here's my take on this. So a lot of emerging technologies has tremendous potential for applications, but it seems to be a need like the, the engineering team or whatnot that is making decisions and the policies arrive much later into the game. So there's this gap between what is possible, what we're making actively as decisions in the field that shape the types of products, the types of features we put out, the even the processes through partnerships that that of how we implement them
2: well we we, we have to educate the we, we have to find the people that have had experiences because believe it or not it's important to understand the policy because you could come up with a great idea but if it can't be funded it doesn't fit within a policy and let's say you think the policy is going to change in 30 60 90 days to fit a business plan you're sorely mistaken and so I have more scars than stars in this industry. I've launched lots of innovations. Some have been really good and some haven't. I've written books about it. I've talked about this regularly. I was on Dr. Oz talking about mental and behavioral health. So you need to find people that really do have more scars than stars, that understand those four elements that you talked about. And and those people should be the leaders of the conversation. And then they need to understand this community, culture and currency. And then be able to land this where it makes a difference—not not at some big business level or some ivory tower in the former U.S. Steel building, now the UPMC building. It needs to be out into the communities. It needs to be in Allegheny County, serving this population and how that works. To use our our Pittsburgh uh, example, and that example is not unique to Pittsburgh. That's Every community in the United States and you need to have people that understand this and then they can put it together And then we can have a, a, a much faster implementation of these best ideas that, that that you talk about and bring people on to share
1: But we'll make a very small parenthesis. What is the currency that you're talking about?
2: The currency is understanding whether or not um, Are they building new housing projects or are they gonna tear down your house and there's a highway coming in. The currency may be, who are the people moving in? Who are the people moving out? The currency may be the tax base versus no more tax base. So the currency is, how does this all work to, to, today? Because you could understand the culture and you could understand the community, but if they're gonna go ahead and bulldoze out of the houses and those people are gonna have to buy, it doesn't matter anymore. But if they're gonna bring a bunch of people in and they're gonna create housing for, for, for people, then, What a great opportunity to talk about food and access and ways that you can create places for kids to go to parks and, and recreation and ensuring that you've got a really good population center to do just what you talked about before, which is have somebody help me ask the questions about my cancer.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you so, so much. We've covered so much with you, and I'm sure people are very curious to learn even more. So we're going to include in the show notes uh, a link to your book uh, and a couple of resources that people can go and dig in a little more to to find out a little bit more information. And I just really want to thank you for having taken the time. It's been fascinating to pick your brain and from you. Yeah, thank you.
2: Thank you so much.